We are starting a new summer and maybe stretching a bit into the fall series this week, going through the book of Romans. We decided on Romans for a couple of reasons. Firstly, that it is maybe Paul's most important letter, but also one of the hardest to understand. (laughs) Paul is trying to pack large amounts into tight spaces in this letter, and that has given rise to some significant misunderstandings about what Paul is actually saying. And this includes such fundamental things as what even is this gospel thing that we talk about, which we'll get to in a minute. But second, we chose Romans because of how clearly it reinforces something that I hope has come through in our study of scripture as a church over the past two and a half years now. As we've gone through Jeremiah, Matthew, Deuteronomy, Revelation, and now Romans, I hope one thing that we have all been struck by is how the story in scripture, when properly understood, is remarkably consistent. That when we have the big picture story in mind, God wanting the whole of creation to be in harmony with and reflective of God's character, and their determination to partner with humans to accomplish that goal, that that God can be trusted to give life in contrast to all the idols who seem to offer us good things, but ultimately only lead us to death. It makes so much of the Bible both make more sense and be more relevant to us. It makes the good news actually sound good. And so we're going to explore Romans together. This is our first week doing so. And see the ways that Paul in particular looks back at the story that he inherited as a first century Jew from the Old Testament. And then in light of Jesus's death and resurrection, he sees what God has been up to all along. This God can be trusted. This God keeps their promises. So this was our sermon from this week. As you all know, Meredith and I are parents of elementary school-aged children, and we are the final generation of parents who can remember a day when we were growing up before our houses had the internet. That is to say, from a technology standpoint, we're parenting kids whose experience of the world is very different from the one that we grew up with. A lot of that is scary. If our kids don't get cell phones until they're off to college, that would be just fine with me. But one of the amazing developments of this internet-saturated world we now live in is Disney+, Plus, or Disney+, Plus, as a podcast I listen to jokingly refers to it. I don't think our kids even comprehend what we're talking about when we tell them how, back in my day, if you wanted to watch a certain movie and needed to either own it or go rent it from the video store, (laughs) then pop it into the VCR, hope that it was all the way rewound and actually worked, and press play. And we haven't even tried to explain the Disney Vault system to them. No, our kids have Disney+, Plus, which means that if they want to watch literally any movie or TV show that Disney has ever produced from classic and oh-so-problematic-for-so-many-reasons cartoons to straight-to-video garbage sequels to cheesy-as-you-can-get live-action 90s Disney Channel shows to Marvel to Pixar to Encanto, it's right there. One recent addition to the Disney Plus library that I'm going to assume that you non-parents of elementary-aged kids have not had the pleasure of watching is a show called The Mysterious Benedict Society. It's based on a book series of the same name, and both are quite good. The premise is that the world is being undermined by omnipresent subliminal messages that create fear, confusion, distrust, anxiety, and cynicism in everybody. A deep sense that the world 
is a disaster, that no one is at the wheel, and that things are perpetually going from bad to worse. And no, I was surprised to learn that this book predated President Donald Trump by at least half a decade. The condition the world is in is called, in the book, The Emergency. And a team of extraordinary children are assembled to combat it and the nefarious, shadowy figure behind these subliminal, anxiety-soaked messages. One of the things I found really interesting about the show, and then the book, was how accurately, if only slightly exaggerated, they portrayed the very real perspective that many people have these days. That things are perpetually going from bad to worse. That the world is a disaster. That no one is at the wheel. That since everyone is out to get each other, I might as well look out for me and my people. Now, if anything, this reality has only intensified in the decade or so since the book was originally published. The rise in anxiety and depression and hopelessness is, in in just the past couple decades, is stunning. I don't think it's too much overstatement to say that some significant portion of our world feels as if they are living through something similar to what the mysterious Benedict Society calls the emergency. That everything is not quite as it should be. And there's no real hope to fix the problems that are apparent on all sides. But, but, then the church comes along and says, wait, we have good news. Yes, the gospel that will make it all better. You see, you are a sinner who has been separated from God by the massive chasm that is your personal sin. But Jesus died so that you could be forgiven and could go to heaven when you die, if only you would believe that Jesus died for you. Good news. But quite frankly, for someone living through the equivalent of the emergency, that isn't good news. It's kind of a complete non sequitur, out of left field. Wait, so... The whole world is a disaster. Injustice is everywhere. Corruption and cynicism are rampant. Systemic problems seem to fill the newspaper every day with no hope to fix them. And you want me to feel happy that my mistakes aren't going to keep me out of heaven? It's like telling someone whose ship has sunk, good news, the Wi-Fi got turned back on. It's no wonder to me that increasingly people, especially young people, exactly the ones who have the highest rates of anxiety and depression and hopelessness in the face of the disastrous world they see around them, that they see what the church is selling and say, that doesn't sound much like good news to me. What you're saying doesn't seem to have any relevance to me and the world that I live in whatsoever. So I'll take my chances elsewhere. Thanks. Maybe someplace that isn't also trying to make me feel ashamed of my imperfections. You'll not be surprised to find out that I don't think the problem is with the people who are rejecting that so-called good news, nor is the problem that the message of the Bible is actually irrelevant to the world people live in. The problem is that what I just outlined is not the gospel, at least not according to the Bible. And so as we begin our series on Romans this week, we find that Paul actually addresses this right off the bat. He lays out the gospel in the opening verses of chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, to be exact. Not, by the way, verses 16 and 17, which is what is often said. But if you want to hear more about that, you can listen to the first main episode of The Backdrop for Romans that will be coming out this week as well. So that's what we're going to read here. Romans 1, 
1 to 7. I'm using N.T. Wright's translation from his Romans for Everyone commentary, by the way, and I go into the reasons for that on the backdrop as well, if you're interested. But here is Romans 1, 1 to 7. Paul, a slave of King Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for God's good news, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the sacred writings, the good news about his son, who was descended from David's seed in terms of the flesh, and who was marked out powerfully as God's son, in terms of the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. Jesus, the King, our Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about believing obedience among all the nations for the sake of his name. That includes you, too, who are called by Jesus, the King. This letter comes to all in Rome who love God, all who are called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from our God, our Father, and King Jesus the Lord. Let me read the parts about the good news again before we dive into what they mean. Set apart for God's good news, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the sacred writings, the good news about his son, who was descended from David's seed in terms of the flesh, and who was marked out powerfully as God's son in terms of the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Jesus the King, our Lord. That is Paul's summary of the good news, and it actually speaks directly to the emergency I referenced earlier. First, the good news was promised by God through the prophets. Now, what good news do we find when we turn to the prophets? We find things like Isaiah 52, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, Yahweh says, my people shall know my name. On that day, they shall know that it is I who speaks. It is I. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now I could give other examples, but the consistent thing in each example from the Old Testament that speaks of good news is that when the Old Testament speaks of it, it's not some abstract idea of us going to heaven. It is concerned with God's self coming to be with God's people. That God, finally, at long last, will be in charge. God reigns. As N.T. Wright puts it, this Isaiah passage tells of a messenger who was to bring to Jerusalem the good news of Babylon's defeat, the end of Israel's exile, and the personal return of Yahweh to Zion. Paul may have added to or adjusted that meaning when he, he uses the term good news, but he is intentionally signaling that that is the starting point for what the gospel is. The promises God made in the Old Testament have come true. Good news. Our God reigns. And not only that, our God can be trusted to keep all those promises that they made. Israel, too, in the days Isaiah wrote those words, lived with a constant reminder that the world was not as it should be. They were, after all, in exile, far away from the promised land, and even farther, seemingly, from the promises God had made. The world, their world, was a disaster. It was an emergency. But, Isaiah says, good news. God has promised to fix this broken world, restore what has been lost, and to personally come near to the brokenhearted, 
to the broken systems, to the broken cultures, to bring goodness and justice and joy back. That is what will happen when God comes near and takes the throne. So that is the first part of Paul's gospel. God's promises are coming true, and God is fixing all that is broken. Second, this good news is about Jesus, who is both God's son and the son of David. These are also referring back to Old Testament expectations of when and how God was going to fix what was broken. Passages like the one in Isaiah look forward to a king who would come and be God's agent in putting the world right again. That king was called the Messiah, and they would be, you guessed it, both David's son and God's son. Now, in the Old Testament, God's son was probably thought to mean that the Messiah would be a special representative of God, an agent filled with God's power, like King David had sometimes been. In the New Testament, we find in the story of Jesus that God takes it much further than that. Jesus is God's son in the sense of actually being God, coming personally to address what is wrong in the world. The second part of the gospel for Paul is that the promised Messiah has arrived. And with him, the new age that God had promised would come when the Messiah arrived has, in fact, come. Third, this Messiah came in a way that wasn't quite what people had expected. Specifically, this so-called Messiah had, you know, already been crucified by Rome. As Wright puts it, any first century Jew would know that a crucified Messiah is a failed Messiah. There's no such thing as a dead king reigning, after all. Which is why the second part of Paul's summary of the good news is so important. Jesus was marked out powerfully as God's son by the resurrection. By raising Jesus from the dead, God has confirmed that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, despite appearances to the contrary. Again, to quote Wright, the resurrection reversed the verdict any first century Jew would have passed on Jesus. He is, in fact, the Messiah after all. And this is the announcement that Paul refers to as the gospel. Good news, God's promises are coming true because Jesus the Messiah was raised from the dead. The time when God would reign and would put the earth back together again, would end injustice and fill the earth with their presence and their goodness— It's here, and Jesus' resurrection confirms that fact. This is, by the way, part of why a literal resurrection actually matters, but that's a topic for another day. And so to sum it all up from Paul's perspective, Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord, has been raised from the dead, and this changes everything. In particular, Paul says, it is time for believing obedience to be extended to the nations, This is a theme that will be unpacked at length in this letter, but for now, we should just note two key points. First, that believing obedience had been the task of just Israel up until now. Israel were the ones who were supposed to live out lives that reflect God's character. But Paul says it's time for it to extend to all people, Gentiles as well as Jews. In fact, the word translated obedience here is the same word that begins the Greek version of the Shema, the pronouncement from Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 and 5 that was the central Jewish daily prayer. Hear, that's the same word Paul uses in Romans, hear, O Israel, Yahweh your God, Yahweh is one. 
You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your being and with all your strength. This is what it meant to be Jewish, to hear and obey this truth about Yahweh. But now the Gentiles are being summoned to hear and obey as well. This is a significant theme for Paul in Romans and and in others of his letters as well. And then second, obedience for Paul is not a moral list of do's and don'ts. It is faith, the belief and trust that the God who raised Jesus from the dead is Lord of all. As Wright says, Paul's apostolic commission is not to offer people a new religious option, but to summon them to allegiance to Jesus, which will mean abandoning other loyalties. Behaving a certain way might follow from that switching of allegiances, but the primary focus is on putting trust in Jesus, not Caesar, not money, not any of the other idols who try to claim our trust. This is Paul's gospel, the one he will be unpacking for the church in Rome in the rest of this letter. So to sum up, the believing obedience that Paul mentions is a result of the gospel. It is the community of God's people actually living as if the gospel were true, living as if Jesus were, in fact, the Messiah, living as if the new age had actually come, living as if God were actually reigning, living as if Jesus were, in fact, Lord. Because if Jesus is Lord, that means it's time to live in ways that reflect God's character. If Jesus is, in fact, Lord, it's time to live now on earth as it is in heaven. If Jesus is, in fact, Lord, then we as the church need to look like it. And this has two crucial impacts on what the church calls the gospel, the good news. First, it actually sounds like good news to those who are tired of injustice and oppression, cynicism and despair, loneliness, anxiety, and hopelessness. God has kept God's promises, and Jesus has come to put it all right, to bring justice and goodness, joy and abundance, and all the other markers of God's kingdom, and to fill the earth with them. That work has begun, and it's time to carry it on. Now, not everyone will believe that that is true, but at least if it were true, it would be good news. And then second, it actually looks like good news. Because if the church lives as if the gospel is in fact true and Jesus is in fact Lord, if the church lives as if the new age has broken in and everything has changed, then the world would see a community offering an alternative to the emergency, offering hope and justice and all the rest, not just in some theoretical way, but in the concrete embodied community that lives out the one another's from the Bible the community that neighbors well, the community that does justice in their day-to-day lives. If the world were to see an example of that community, well, that might just be good news.